This rumination request came from one of my biggest and longest standing supporters over on Patreon. And that's why I said yes to it, because otherwise I would have been inclined to say no. Now I know what you're thinking. <laughs> Laura, why would you say no to doing a, rum a movie rumination, which you're usually okay with, about a movie you very much like and, in fact, have seen multiple times. In fact, this time, re-watching this for this rumination, was my fourth time watching this film. So, what's the issue here? Well, the answer is Zootopia was not the rumination request. Let me clear something up very quickly. I've been kind of wanting to do this in an open media for some time, and I hope at least a decent number of my viewers will watch this particular video in order to be able to learn this little history lesson. You see... <clears throat> All the way back in the day, when I used to just do these for fun in my spare time while I was doing server updates or whatever, I would just sit down and talk about a game. From memory. As in, I hadn't played the game recently, I didn't play it before, and I didn't have any notes. That was pretty much my requirement for my old ruminations. I wasn't actually calling them that back then. It was just, alright, uh, what's a game I could talk about off the top of my head? And there are a few games like that. There are still some games like that to this day. But that was what I I'd yo used to choose those original games and what I was talking about. It's also why a lot of those old ruminations are a little more rambling and are frankly terrible. I really wish you guys would let me delete them, but whatever. <laughs> so... <clears throat> By about the time I started running out of games that I could talk about, you know, off the top of my head, the Mass Effect 3 incident happened. And all of a sudden I had an audience, an audience that was saying, I'd really love it if you'd talk about such and such. Now, back when that first happened, I only had about 500 or so viewers regular. But I got a lot of requests from those 500 viewers, so that's how far back you have to go to understand something. That's the last time I chose what I was ruminating on. Those original little batch of things before the Mass Effect 3 situation happened. Everything after that, every single rumination I've done since then has been chosen by you guys. Originally it was just requests. You know, someone would say in the comments, can you please ruminate on such and such? And I'd say, yeah, sure. Once I started doing this as my full-time job, uh, it became a, a thing through Patreon. People who donated and supported through Patreon would be able to request something, and I would do it based on that. So what I'm trying to say is, for the better part of the last five or so years, I haven't chosen what I've ruminated on. I, I don't. It was either been random viewers or patrons ever since. This leads me to why this was such a difficult issue. And I actually wrestled with this for some time, to be completely honest with you, because the request was... You, that is to say me, choose what I ruminate on. I was told to choose my own rumination for the first time in five years. Um, that was a little daunting. And I say without hyperbole that I actually spent a few months deliberating on this point. It's actually the specific reason why I pushed this particular rumination to the very end of this floodgate cycle because I specifically wanted to ensure that I had as much time as possible to think about it. Ultimately, however, I decided to go ahead and go back to my roots on this one, something I just could talk about off the top of my head. Now, that's not just because it's something I know very well, or even something that I like very well, but because it has something that I want to discuss, something that I wanted to sit down and say, God, do you ever think about this or such and such, you know? The kind of thing where if another person showed up who was a fan of said franchise or game or movie or whatever showed up, I would want to talk to that person about such and such. 
And that leads me to this movie. I was actually impressed by... I I had the great fortune of seeing this movie in the theaters, thanks to my niece. Um, Although I do... I am very much fond of Pixar films, and I'm not particularly ashamed of that. Yes, I know this isn't actually... uh, you get, you get my point. The, the, I have been a fan of the Pixar style of films ever since they started happening, and very few of them are ones I don't care for. Cars, excuse me. Oh, I had something terrible stuck in my throat there. But <laughs> even when I first saw this, this movie impressed me. Now, this, this particular uh, s- series of developers is kind of well-known for really, really doing their homework on a lot of aspects of the animation. And I, I've, I was looking into the behind-the-scenes stuff, and almost all of it was completely about how much time they spent studying. Like, they literally put samples of fur under microscopes, under different lighting patterns to, to see what it would look like close up so they could replicate that and then go across the entire fur patch, and actual animal behavior by going to multiple different zoos and multiple different locations across the world, and the amount of time and effort they spent studying the architecture of multiple different cities in order to design Zootopia itself so it actually looked like a functional city and blah, 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 blah. Not a lot of what I usually get from the behind-the-scenes stuff. Now, I will admit, if there is one flaw to this film, it feels a little bit too small in terms of its characters. Within the first about 15 minutes or so, I didn't write down the time, we encounter almost every major character in the entire film. Like, just more or less by happenstance as you're walking along, pretty much by the time we meet Zenik, uh, which I think that's how you're supposed to pronounce it. They almost never say his name. The Little Fox. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. The, we have met pretty much every major character, including Doug, it's worth noting, uh, up until that point in time. We've already met Bellwether, we've already met Bogo, we've already met, you know, obviously Judy and uh, Nick. We meet Nick in that scene. You, you know, <laughs> there are very few exceptions to characters who have any relevance that we'll meet after that. There's, I think, like four total. Nevertheless, One thing the movie does very, very well is details. The amount of attention put into details in this film is actually mind-boggling. I kind of... This is the kind of film that would be perfect for a lore run. Because I could actually point to each of these things as we're going through. Like, look! Look, and there's that, and then there's that, and look what happened there! And there's this thing! Remember this thing? This ties into this other thing? Doing this in a rumination format isn't going to work, so I'm not going to. I'm just going to point out a few of the details that I personally found more interesting than the others. Um, I actually have two pages of notes for this movie, so holy hell. Um, I do want to say one quick thing about the behind the scenes, and that's that this... I've seen the the interviews about what this film was originally going to be, and it's very different... I'm not sure I would have liked the original film, which actually focused entirely on Nick and was a spy thriller type story that happened to have some scenes set in this Zootopia place. And then everyone was like, man, that Zootopia place is great. And just the focus of it kind of shifted over to the city and it went from being spy or agents or whatever down to being cops and the focus shipped over to Judy and and the rest of it just kind of developed from there. But there was one other thing that went into the creation of this film that I like a lot. Most of the time, when you have a fictional setting with a more anthropomorphized, I'm saying that wrong, anthropomorphized animals, which, just to be clear, is animals who behave and act like humans, they're animals who behave and act like humans, and that's pretty much the end of it, right? Uh, to go back to the very old Robin Hood with the fox Robin Hood all the way back in like the 50s, I want to say, or something like that. 
Those were just animals who were acting as though they were humans, and that was the end of it. No effort was put into explaining why they were that way. It was just a direct corollary. Very rarely has something been done where there's a setting where animals act like humans because they have specifically evolved effectively in place of humans. They have actually grown and, and just developed and come up with comp compromises and concepts like civilization and economics and politics and all that fun stuff, completely segregate from any human influence. It's an intriguing concept, and the world builder in me loves this film. I would love to be able to actually do something with this setting in the future. The only downside is the only way to continue this idea in any of my own fictional works would be to basically completely plagiarize it because, I mean, they've already done the idea. But, I mean, just, just a couple little tidbits like the fact that Zootopia itself is, of course, wonderfully fleshed out and thought out. I'll talk about that in just a moment. Um, but we get hints and details that obviously there's a world outside of this one city. In fact, there's quite a bit of a world outside this one city. And we get ideas of... Um, Basically, entire, I guess, uh, counties is the word I want to use, or maybe even states that are pretty much divided along species lines. Obviously, foxes and rabbits do exist alongside each other, but we also saw lambs and a few others. Basically, relatively smaller, more multi, uh, multi-environment, multi-biome multi species are the ones who are all around... Uh, uh, Burrowton, I think? God, I actually don't remember the name of the place where Judy's from, but we see a couple of different species around there. But they're all the same general kind of category, the same same type of species who could live there. So I have a feeling that, you know, for example, tigers or cheetahs or lions or wolves or figs or frogs or whatever would probably have their own little biome separately. Oh, that reminds me of another thing. Something that was done very deliberately is there's no reptiles, not really, and there's no birds. I could do so much with that fact right there. Think about nations being divided along those kind of lines. Remember, they keep it's, they continuously refer to each other as mammals. They, in fact, they pretty much use the word mammal in place of what we would use uh, for people or person or you know, human, for that matter. Mammals is pretty much their term for whom and what they are, regardless of species. But mammals are not reptiles or birds. I love the idea that there are other nations out there that are bird-dominant or reptilian-dominant and that there's some political interests or war or whatever else amongst those because, I, because it's me and I love setting building. We don't really get anything of that. I just thought I'd share that as we're talking about it. <clears throat> now, uh, the main theme of the film is almost smashed into your face constantly. But what I find funniest about it is... It wasn't actually obvious until we started to see the flip side of it. Now, I'm going to save that for later. But for most of the film, for a decent chunk of the film, it just feels like the entire film is about um, two major themes. The theme of trying to actually accomplish something and, you know, live for your dreams. You know, fairly typical fictional theme. You know, treats for the skies kind of a thing. And the theme of prejudice of how ah, the, the predators were just looking down upon the prey and how the predators were obviously the superior race and blah, 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 you know. And that kind of racial bias painting the prey as victims. I have to be completely honest, it was not until a certain point in the film and upon repeat viewings that I realized that the entire thing is being portrayed from both perspectives from the very beginning. In fact, I myself have just used a deliberate misnomer to make my point. 
the entire film goes out of its way to divide the mammals into predators and prey. And this is why I wanted to talk about this film. Anybody who's watched my streams, my ruminations on television and my ruminations on my main Friday features knows that one of the things I tend to talk about a lot, and it, in my defense it's just because it comes up a lot, but it came up all the time last year, was the idea of lines. You know, whether it's species lines or religious lines or organization lines or gender lines or racial lines or whatever, that that line mentality that deliberate intent to separate yourself from others so that you're not looking at them as the same kind of people or you're deliberately viewing them as the enemy. The very diversement of predators and prey is a line. It's not even 100% accurate. And that's the best part because you'll notice they don't say herbivores and carnivores and omnivores for that matter. That's not how they divide it. It's not about what you eat. It's not about what kind of behavior you had back when you actually were an animal. It's not about what your diet is or anything like that. There is this bias against certain types of animals which are basically just automatically lumped into predators. And the predators are the minority. And yet the predators themselves, in many cases, because they have been pushed to this side of the line, treat the other people on the other side of the line as if they were on the other side of the line. We see this bias go back and forth. It, it, it's a multi-directional thing. That's exactly my point. Too many fictional works, in my opinion, portray this kind of bias, you know, racial bias, genderist bias, species bias, whatever, as uh, unidirectional. We're biased against you. They're the victims. And that's so normal in fiction. But that's not how it is here. I'll talk more about the specifics of that as we go throughout the film, but that central theme is what really resonated with me on this one. So early on, we have some of the best parental advice I've ever heard. I personally disagree with it violently, but then again, I am both insane and extremely ambitious. The two, mother, uh, the, the two mothers, wow, the mother and the father, the two parents, tell uh, Judy, you know, we, you know, why we're so darned happy? It's because we gave up on our dreams and settled. We settled hard. And, and it's great to have dreams, it just, it just so long as you don't believe in them too much. As absolutely horrible as this sounds, that's actually surprisingly down-to-earth, realistic advice to give a child. I mean, there is nothing wrong with having dreams. Just, just, don't, just don't try to reach for the stars and, and don't try to, you know, don't, don't believe in them too hard. Because, let's be honest, you're probably going to fail at your dreams. I mean, encouragement is one thing, but this is just a little bit of couching of reality. And it's, it's wonderfully... Uh, human, I guess is the word I want to use. I was, I was stuttering over that because I didn't want to use that word here. But it is. It's a wonderfully human thing to say to your child. Um... I mentioned the ecosystem thing here. I've kind of already talked about that there's the multiple world things. One interesting thing, I just, I'm just kind of blazing through the film here because I don't have much to say about the intro part, but I do like the part about how her nose twitches when she's afraid or excited or whatever. I just want you to remember that. If you happen to rewatch this film, either before or after this rumination, do me a favor and watch Judy's nose. I know that sounds weird, but remember how I mentioned those details? They are very good with when her nose twitches and when it does not. So, 
they're talking about, oh, God, you need to go, and there's predators, and oh, my God, and, and weasels. you got to be careful about weasels. And no, honey, you play poker with a weasel. And he cheats like crazy. And they're just kind of going back and forth. And she's like the couching voice of reason, and he's like, oh, my God, you don't understand. Until they bring up foxes. Now, one of the things I think is interesting about this film is for all the biases, and there are multiple different biases which are presented both as an aggregate as, and as individuals throughout the course of the film, the anti-Fox bias is almost universal. We see the kids do it back in the flashback. We see the elephant do it very severely. In fact, he even has, if, forgive me for skipping ahead, but the elephant, when he's talking down to Nick, says, look, I don't know if you read Fox. Now, I'm emphasizing that a bit more because he says it quickly. He, he almost kind of slides that insult under the rug there, but that's what he says. We also see Chief Bogo portraying bias against the fox, and, of course, her mother and father. And she has bias against foxes, too. In fact, I think I'm missing a few instances. It's very common, in other words. I find myself wondering why foxes of all species get it that badly, but... Then again, at the same time, it makes sense that a few specific species would have very strong, stronger stereotypes than other species, and that that would kind of be self-perpetuating. I mean, it's the old argument, right? When everyone treats you like a crook, why bother being anything else? So, <clears throat> there's a lot of human moments, and I just want to comment on one really quick. As obvious as always, the animation is absolutely freaking amazing, and I just want to eat it up. Like, just watching, literally just sitting and watching this film is a treat. Uh, this is among my favorite uh, CGI films. I don't know how else to quantify that at this point. But there's a little scene where she's running onto the train, and she's all excited, and then just for a moment, it dawns on her what she's doing. And there's just a little bit of a sag, a little bit of a change in her tone and posture. She turns around, and she runs back out and gives her parents both a very human. I love that. So... What follows is roughly, and I had to count this manually, 2 minutes and 38 seconds of Zootopia, of the city itself. Now that is not a complaint, because as I mentioned before, I love the city itself, and they put a huge amount of effort into really designing and fleshing this thing out. Probably one of my favorite bits, and I know everyone comments on this, but it's worth, it's worth commenting on, is the, is the dry desert biome being immediately next to the tundra biome, because... That's how thermodynamics would actually work in that situation. That's awesome. Uh, assuming they had the power to keep it running, of course. I wonder what they use for power generation in this city. Because, I mean, the power needs have got to be through the roof, right? Anyways, 2 minutes and 38 seconds of just pure visual gush. And a decent song playing. I, I don't care for it that much. But, I mean, I could watch that on mute and still love it. I'm not going to bore you with it. It's amazing. And it's, it's worth showcasing because not only does it serve the story element of trying to emphasize the multiple biomes, the multiple peoples, the multiple different species all coordinating in a way that we haven't really seen to date. Remember, we were fairly self-enclosed uh, in what we have seen thus far and what she has seen li living and growing up on the farm. But we also see the the work and the effort that was put in by the artists and by the designers and by the, the modelers and the animators and... God knows how many other people were actually working on that city. Those people deserve a medal and probably a raise and probably a week off. <clears throat> so then, then she gets parking duty from Chief Bogo. Now, I'd like to share a theory I've read about from other people who have theorized about this film. Excuse me. Weird hiccup. Uh, that theory is that Chief Bogo is actually a really good person who 
was completely justified in everything he did. Now, I don't fully agree with that theory, and there are two reasons why, which I will cover later. But I do have to admit that there's a decent amount of evidence that what he is doing is fully logical and reasonable and not being a dick. First point of evidence, and I know this is jumping forward way ahead, is the fact that once any given individual earns his respect, he's actually quite affable and nice around them, including Judy herself later on. Uh, furthermore, <clears throat> there is a great deal of logic into giving a rookie cop an easy assignment. I mean, the argument that Judy seems to have is, well, you've got missing mammals cases, I need to help with that. You know, we need every cop available working on this. And his logic seems to be more along the lines of, you just became a cop yesterday. Go be a meter maid. Now, I do have to comment on one thing. I actually know a guy, this is many years ago, back when I was in college, who did become a cop for a particular city and was specifically requesting meter maid duty for his first tour or whatever the hell they actually called that. Now, you might be asking, why would anybody want that duty? Because he wanted to learn the layout of the city inside and out. He wanted to learn all the back streets, all the alleyways, and all the roadways so he would know how to get to wherever he needed to go as quickly as possible with no issue or effort. He actually didn't do all that well at meter mating because he spent most of his time running around trying to you know, track everything and, get, and map out the city for himself. I don't know if that's a completely valid reason for giving a rookie cop that. I just thought I'd mention it because it was probably one of the first things I thought of when I was going through with analysis mode and saw the meter made thing. Another point to bring up. <clears throat> Later on, Chief Bogu makes it very clear that he does not like having... I forget how he phrases it, but he basically says just another political assignment shoved down my throat. Do you think I wanted this? Do you think I wanted Ch uh, Mayor uh, Lionheart to be to force me to keep going with his whole, you know, mammalian initiative, blah, 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 crap? I get the impression, and I know other people have seen this as well, that Lionheart, who is a politician, has been politicking and basically getting in the way of the investigation more than a little... I'm sorry, I'm saying that wrong. Not the in the way of the investigation. In the way of the department. In the way of the cops doing their job more than once because of trying to, to keep his playing at politics. And so it is entirely possible, and indeed I'd say this is very likely, that Chief Bogo initially views Judy as someone who's oh, just someone else I have to put up with who has been rammed down my throat. Whatever. Fine. The final bit of evidence that has been levied is the fact that he gives her 48 hours to sink or swim. Whether that's a valid leadership strategy is up to you, and a lot of that depends on whether or not he would have actually fired her if she failed. This is where my personal disbelief comes into this. This is because it looks like, you know, in the scene where they're in the rainforest, he asks for her badge. And that to me sounds like he fully intended to actually fire her over this which would make this not a particularly good leadership decision. Let me explain what I mean by this. She had 48 hours to figure this out or fail. This would accomplish one of two objectives, theoretically. If she succeeds, she's a damn good cop, and she would have his respect. And funnily enough, that is what happens. She does succeed. He, she does have his respect. He knows that she can actually be someone who is competent and whom he can rely on, which is what he wants. That, that's very clear in this film. Or... She would fail, and her ego would deflate. She would be brought down to earth. I hate to quote a recent film, but uh, failure is a fantastic teacher. Uh, 
And remember, this is a woman who is a valedictorian, who is incredibly ambitious, and who received a political assignment to the central precinct of Zootopia. Precinct 1, city center, right? In other words, the top precinct of the entire region. I do like how they mentioned that there's you know, multiple precincts. That, that would make a lot of sense, given how huge the city is. So, by all accounts, she is someone who needs to be taken down a peg, especially for someone who doesn't know her. Speaking as someone who does know her, because I've been analyzing this film several times, she absolutely needs to be taken down a peg. One of the things that's relevant about her character pretty much throughout the entire film is that she is very, very passionate absolutely passionate, definitely cares about what she's doing. She's one of those people who wants to do the right thing for the right reason rather than, you know, just because it's expedient or because it's political or whatever. She actually cares. And I like that. And I do think that kind of person would make a great cop. With temperament. <laughs> With tempering, I should say. Because multiple times in this film, like when she goes after Weaselton, not Wesselton, and when she goes after uh, all the evidence in the train car, are just two obvious examples off the top of my head, she basically overextends herself and it doesn't go particularly well. Now, it is worth noting that in the case of Wessel, excuse me, Weaselton, now I'm, now I'm screwing up, in the case of Weaselton, she did succeed there with minimal problems. But she still came very close to causing a total disaster, basically just in her own enthusiasm. Abandoning her post, abandoning the, the property, um, causing a huge ruckus, making a panic amongst the small town, or whatever it was actually called. Um, and of course, I don't actually know how much property damage was caused during that scuffle, but at least a little bit. However, she did catch the guy. He does actually acknowledge that, of course. She does catch the guy. And I would be remiss if I didn't point out that, obviously, uh, he is connected to this whole thing somehow because he was trying to sell Night Howlers to... Yeah, so anyways, <clears throat> moving on. It's another one of those connecting points things. The train thing is a much more obvious example of her overextending and completely screwing up. To be blunt, if not for Nick, she would have been screwed because she would have had no evidence whatsoever. <clears throat> yeah. Anyways. So, the logic here is, let's bring her down a peg. No, you failed. And then, if this was legitimate, he would be like, all right, you're not fired, you're going to go back to meter maid duty, we'll work your way back up the ranks, you know. Because that's what you're supposed to do to your rookies. You're supposed to train them so they're not rookies anymore, right? Right? Anybody out there who plays video games? I'm sure at least some of you do. That's what you do with noobs. You try to make them not noobs anymore. Anyways. So, then they go on the meter maid montage, and uh, it's, a, it's a nice little montage. It kind of shows that whole drive and passion thing I mentioned earlier. And then Doug nearly runs over Nick. This is probably one of the most interesting scenes in the whole film, because it's the most subtle, in my opinion. There's a lot of obvious symbolism, and there's a lot of somewhat more under-the-hood symbolism. But this scene is bloody sim sim uh, bleh, subtle. Because that is Doug. It's Doug driving the van. And he nearly runs Nick over. And in response to this, Nick does this. No vocals, by the way. He's just like, dude, you almost ran me over. He doesn't say anything. You know what Doug says? He yells at him aggressively and angrily and gestures while he drives away. Judy, the cop, looks at the guy who just nearly got run over 
and get suspicious of him. Now, if you've seen this film, you understand why. It's because he's a fox. And the other one was a lamb or a ram or whatever. I'm not actually sure, to be completely honest with you. They all look the same to me. <laughs> uh, sheep. We'll just call him a sheep. There you go. I love that. That is bloody subtle. And it's like a three-second scene. Just, And then she's on. And then the whole scene is framed as her following this shifty fox. She even reaches for a fox repellent. And then, of course, he starts doing his thing. And she's and the look on her face, oh, my God, she's mortified because she's biased, too. She is prejudiced against foxes. Talk more about that in a, in a few. <clears throat> so um, she does that. They, he starts doing his hustle. And, uh, and I mentioned, of course, the, look, you probably can't read fox. I already mentioned that earlier. One thing I want to add on top of this is that uh, I actually wrote down the species somewhere. I have so many notes. Uh, Nick goes out of his way to... Ah, it's a fennec. Nick goes out of his way to present fennec as his son. That's another one of those little subtle things that's probably not going to make sense unless you know anything about foxes because fennec is a different species of fox. Nick is a red fox. Fennec is a fennec fox. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly can't be a son. Nobody notices. Because you all look the same. I mean, I said that jokingly earlier, but I was trying to set up to this because that is exactly the point. Everyone just sees a fox and another fox, and at no point does it occur to any of the people who see the two hustling them that they couldn't possibly be related. Even Judy, who, it's worth noting, has a lot of book knowledge and could usually catch up on that little bit of minutiae. Yeah. So, let's see here. Checking my notes really quick here. All right. So, I want to mention one other thing really quick. There's a bit where she says, man, you're just a real articulate fella. Now, that's just slathering the obviousness all over the place. Because she's saying that from an obvious, like, man, you're really good. She, she all but says, you're a real articulate fella for a fox. And his response is just horrifying in its, in its overtness. You know, the whole, oh, I've, it's rare I see people who aren't so condescending. Thing is, that, one, that, that got me thinking a little, bit, a little bit. Why articulate? Of all the many prejudices we see against foxes in this film, being articulate is not one of them. But then I remembered the previous fox she had significant encounter with, at least that we see, is Gideon Gray, who is not articulate. In fact, he's an idiot. You know, he's, he's got to find his Dunna, or Denna, his DNA, right? <clears throat> so, this is basically just her being like, no, no, you're, you're definitely not like in the other foxes I've seen. Just a little touch there. So then things start to go badly. And I, I have a quick question here, really quick. So, she's been meter mating, and that was the, you know, I'm going to prove to the world scene. You know, we've got the rise in tempo. And then she finds out about Nick's hustle, which is a nice little montage. And then she starts coming down a little bit because he basically talks circles around her. She's too personally upset and emotionally invested in this to actually be able to think around this. It's not that she's dumb. Later on, when she actually uses her brain, she catches him handily and easily like five times in a row. So that's not the issue. She's just pissed. And of course she is. God Damn it, I just, I just went through this whole thing where I thought foxes were okay because I, I thought you weren't okay, but then you were okay, but now you're not okay again. Of course she's upset because what she's thinking in her head is, I was right. 
I was right to look down on foxes. I was right to keep this stupid fox repellent on my belt. I mentioned the nose thing. When she's leaving to go meter mating for the day, she leaves and she looks down at the fox repellent and her nose twitches. Then she leaves without it. No, no, no. And then she comes back and gets it. So she's pissed, obviously. I have a quick question, though. Why is his van, I know it's actually not his van, but why is their van a piece of crap? And why do they have old, dilapidated clothes, and why are they poor? Now, you might be like, well, of course they're poor. They don't have a real job. They're foxes. He says he makes $200 a day. That's a lot of freaking money. I wouldn't mind making $200 a freaking day. Jesus Christ. That's, um... Oh, God, that's like 40-something a year. I, I don't feel like doing the math off the top of my head. That's, that's almost twice what I make. In fact, I think that's over twice what I make right now. And I, I don't exactly make terrible money. Thank you all, everyone, for your assistance on that. So why is he in this? I, I mean, he even has the same bandana from when he was a kid. He's, he's got this frickin' shirt, which is, still has the same design as his own. I mean, why? Why is his van a piece of crap? I don't know. Anyways, I just thought I'd mention that. One other thing that I didn't catch until this playthrough, or excuse me, watch through. She goes and she gets the, the thing of carrot, the, the, the carrot dinner, and she puts it in. And then the, it comes out and it's this dinky little thing. Now my first gut reaction was, well, the obvious one. You know, I was expecting this, and I got this. But that didn't actually make sense to me. Because it actually, the, the, the carrot is very small, not just a bad carrot. And she surely would have been able to feel how heavy it was, and it actually says the ounceage on the, on the surface of the package. So unless they're flat out lying, and then it clicked with me. She overcooked it. And I know, this is hysterical. I swear I'm not making this up. I was actually steaming some vegetables while I was watching this film, uh, which includes steamed carrots. And I kid you not, I was actually munching on some shriveled, tiny steamed carrots while I was watching the scene when it clicked. I swear I'm not making this up. It was carrots, onions, and potatoes, because I love seeing vegetables. So it was just, oh, of course, she overcooked it. That's the point. The point is that she messed up again. <sighs> so I already mentioned her reckless approach thing. I do want to mention how I like how the movie simultaneously encourages her as the protagonist and encourages us to root for her while at the same time penalizes her and punishes her for doing what is effectively the wrong thing. What she did was very reckless and very... It's pretty much the definition of reckless endangerment, actually. Now, I don't agree with the whole wait for the real cops to deal with it, but at the same time, what she did was not was basically not, not too far in one direction, which is total obstinacy, and too far in the direction that she was doing, which was going completely over the top. I said that sentence wrong. Point being, she went too far in one way. She should have had a more measured response, but she doesn't because she's Judy. That's, that's not what she does. So Mrs. Hops, or would that be Miss Hops? Oh, you know what? I don't remember. Let's call her Officer Hops because I don't remember how that goes. Officer Hops decides to just charge in and be hero. She even says this flat out to Bogle later. I went in. I caught the bad guy. That's what I'm supposed to do. And then between the damages between the endangerment and between the onions, she's nearly fired over this, it's worth noting. In fact, she technically should have been fired. The only thing that prevented that was Bellwether getting involved. 
I want to point something out really quick here. This is something that's established throughout the film, but it's very interesting to me the way they present it. Chief Bogo is very honest. Uh, Nick is surprisingly honest. You know, uh, Klauhauser, honest. Most of those characters are actually pretty damn honest around uh, that, that we see on screen. Bellwether is nice. And that's the really weird thing, because one of the traits that she has is that she is kind and considerate and helpful, but not that she's honest. I find that very interesting that that was deliberately put into her dialogue throughout the course of this film. So I mentioned the uh, politics thing. Not going to go over that again. And the bargain thing, which I've already talked about. Then is probably one of my favorite scenes in the film, where she goes and he's like, look, I've been doing this forever, blah, 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 what do you got me on? She's like, all right, you're under arrest. He's like, what, for hurting your feelings? Every single scene Nick has been in, 100% of them up to this point, he's either had his hustle face on or his I don't give a damn about anything in the world face on. Then she says, felony tax evasion, and his mask just crumbles. And I love the way they animate, again, I love the animation. He just, you see the dark horror on his face because he understands just how terrible that is. Most people understand how bad tax evasion is. <laughs> so he's just like, and then he recovers a little bit. No, no, it's okay. It's your word against mine. And then she blips up the pen and then he gets even more horrified like, oh my god, no! Please! I'm sorry. I, I hate to gush. I just love that little bit. But it's actually character development as well. Because it showcases something that needs to be shown, and will be shown throughout the course of the rest of the film. Nick is one of those characters, and I've seen this a lot in fiction over the last year of the ruminations you guys have been requesting. Nick is one of those characters where they basically act a particular way normally. When stuff gets real, they act completely differently. Because stuff has gotten real. Because now, it's, now the cards are on the table, or the chips are down, and it's like, oh, okay, now i got to do stuff. And their demeanor, or their approach, or their mindset, or whatever, completely change. Uh, sometimes people, uh, you know, are like uh, Dandelion over in Witcher 3 is the kind of guy, if, if the chips are down, he's got your back regardless, right? Just to use one example of that off the top of my head. Nick is the same way. When the chips are down, he is not someone who wants to hurt people. He is not someone who is evil. He is not someone who is actively going out of his way to harm anyone with his hustles. He did steal, and he is doing tax evasion. But he is not actively trying to hurt or maim or kill or anything like that. He happens to know a lot of people, and that's about the extent of his crimes uh, in, in terms of his, his networking. He's not actually part of the Mafia. Though he probably could have become part of the Mafia. Another quick side note. You'll notice that we only see a little bit of an insight into the criminal underworld of, of, of Zootopia. And with the exception of the sheep, it's all predators. Now that makes perfect sense to me because, well, there's a factoid that's tossed around twice in this movie that predators are in the 10% range and the prey are in the 90% range. So, like I said, predators are minorities, and, well, when you're an oppressed minority, one of the things that tends to happen very commonly is that those type of people tend to form organized crime. This is not me trying to bias against anyone or any group or anything in real life. This is fact. So, <clears throat> uh, so they do the tax evasion thing, and uh, then they go to the naturalist club. Now, 
I found myself writing something for this, and then I started laughing at myself because I was having something biased involved as well. For anybody who knows me knows, I'm kind of a prude. Um, this is how my friends have described me. I've just kind of decided to embrace it, whatever, fine. But it's true, I don't like, you know, just if you want to do that over in your own private, nowhere near me territory, that's fine, you know. I don't want sex in my movies or in my games. Just, just put it over there. I don't want it, you know. But what's funny is this scene doesn't bother me. Of course it doesn't. It's just a bunch of animals, right? So I start writing down how interesting it is that Judy comes across as her own variety of a prude because the entirety of her bias is purely cultural. And then I started mentally thinking about the idea of cultural bias against being naked for animals. And then I realized that's actually partially how we are here in real life in humans. And that's how I am. And then I started laughing at myself. Because I was going to use this as an example of how different Zootopia was. But they're not. This is just a nudist colony. In fact, it's actually a more... Uh, I suppose I should say PG nudist colony because there's no genitalia on display throughout the entire section. And I mean, why would there be? It's, it's basically a kid's film. <sighs> so the only actual bias here, the only, oh God, that's horrible, is purely cultural or preferential. And um, you can kind of tell that, that Nick isn't super comfortable there, but Judy is actively uncomfortable there. And I probably would be, too. Anyways, you can make fun of me. Go ahead. I deserve it. So then there's the sloth scene. Now, I have only two things to say about the sloth scene. First of all, there's only one gag in the sloth scene that still makes me laugh, and that's the picture gag. Uh, how many times have we gone to get our picture taken, and the delay is just so wrong on the picture, so you're like, eh, and it starts to slip a little bit, and then the picture's taken, and then, so your driver's license picture's terrible, right? I love the idea of the fact that the guy hitting the thing is just doing it so slowly. And, and so the, you know, the woman there is like, eh? <laughs> that made me laugh. The other thing I have to say is what I like to call the, well, it's, I know Pixar, but it's, it's the Pixar advert paradox. Because this is true in multiple cases for these kind of films. Um, I, it, I've noticed they've kind of stopped doing this recently. I don't know if that will continue into the future. But one of the things that Pixar films for quite a while did there, and especially when this film came out, was they would release an entire scene, basically unedited, as the trailer. Now, on the one hand, I love that. Because anybody who's seen me knows that I rail against how trailers are being designed and how there's basically like a trailer subculture uh, when it comes to media and news outlets and professional movie critics. I'm trying to make that distinction. Um, and how much, you know, there's, there's just so much crap that goes into trailers. You know, there's the trailers that are deliberately misleading and try to completely change what you're thinking is happening, which happens all the time. And then there's the trailers that are way too spoily and spoil way too much of the film. And I'm sure you can think of plenty of examples of that one, right? And then there's the trailers that just showcase too much or too little. So it's like, okay, what's the point of this? You know, all of those types of trailers are just, no, go away, go away. The one type of trailer I like is this type because it's literally just a scene from the movie. Therefore, will I like the movie or not is a lot easier to determine based on this scene. However, the reason I call this the paradox is because I've seen this scene before in the trailers. Um, probably more than once. I've probably seen this trailer a few times, and then I actually see it in the film. 
a lot of the impact and humor and, and enjoyment of that scene goes down a little bit because I've seen it already, right? It's one of those really weird situations where I almost wonder if they should like make the scene and then chop it out of the film and just put it in the trailer. I, I don't know. It's just... It's like I said, it's a paradox because it works and yet it's yeah. They did the same thing with Inside Out as another direct example on that one. Anyways. So um what am I looking at? I'm just glancing at my stuff my notes here. We're gonna gonna zoom forward a little bit here. I mentioned the criminals thing. I, it actually doesn't surprise me too much that a shrew is the Godfather, Mr. Big, because shrews are mean little bastards. Oh, my God. There's a reason they call it the taming of the shrew, for crying out loud. A <clears throat> um, couple things. First of all, just I mentioned little details, and I like to talk about little details whenever I can. There's a little tidbit where, where Nick, uh, Nick and Judy are examining the limo lot, right? Judy has her light out. Nick does not, because Nick is a fox, and foxes have pretty good, you know, low-light vision. I just thought that was a nice little touch. What I also like is, once again, we see that once things get real, his facade just goes away. Like, like he's just still being a snarker, pretty, pretty full-tilt snarker, right up until he realizes who's the limo is, and it's facade gone. Oh, God, we gotta get out of here. We gotta get, hi, facade back, hey, hey. Um, you want to let me go? No. Okay, that's a no. And uh, <clears throat> and then they're doomed. I wonder why he sold her a rug out of a skunk butt. Remember, shrews have pretty good sense of smell, so... Anyways, so then we see Mr. Big. I don't have much to add to that scene. It's a good scene. One of the things I find... Um, very interesting is that just about everyone involved automatically assumes that this vicious behavior is just biology. It's just natural. Several characters say that flat out, including Mr. Big in, in the scene that I just mentioned. And later on, the actual scientist who's in, in trying to look into the situation mentions, you know, we need to look into the biology and blah, blah, blah. Obvi I, I mention that because it's interesting to me how many people just sort of automatically assume that it's just another sign of that natural predators versus prey bias that I've mentioned many times. Further interesting, since Mr. Big, a predator, still has that same bias. So, action sequence stuff happens. It's good. I don't have much to say about the action sequences, so I'm not going to really talk about them. But then something happens. And I kind of mentioned this a bit here uh, earlier. Bo uh, Chief Bogo is actively specious, I guess is the correct term, against Nick. You think I'm going to trust the word of a fox? Now, I find that very interesting, because if we were to remove speciesism from the, from the circumstance, if she said, I have a key witness that this happened, then he should be like, okay, I accept your key witness, because you, a cop, an officer, are willing to say this, and you have a witness willing to say the same damn thing. Now, that is not 100% proof, uh, and I forget the actual, there's like tiers of proof, there's like seven tiers of proof, I forget all of them off the top of my head, but that's at least a couple steps up. You know, that's, that's not beyond reasonable doubt, that's below that, but it, it's up there above reasonable suspicion, right? I mean, he would still have to take that, but he doesn't, because he's a fox. Interesting little side note, uh, Chief Bogo is a water buffalo, not a predator. 
he acts very aggressive and, and brutish most of the film, too, which is actually in character for Water Buffaloes. I just thought I'd point that out because it's another one of those little subversion-type things they like to do. Virtually every presentation of character in this film has at least one subversion of the expected archetype as part of the, the film's message. I'm not going to go down all of them. I just wanted to mention that. So, notice, notice her nose while Chief Bogo is, is chewing her out and demanding her badge. And then notice Nick. He looks horrified, actually angry. And you'll get this impression, this is just me, that he looks at this like, oh, oh, this was real. I thought you were just playing pretend. I thought you were just trying to be a real cop. He's actually trying to, to kick you out of the force over this, and that's when he gets involved. He also does a little bit of a sly one. See, he has four digits, so this is his full hand, right? You know, like this. As he's counting out, he does this and says, we have ten hours left. Now, of course, most people don't notice that because most people, when they put their palms out like this, are holding up ten digits. So, ten hours makes sense. But he's holding up eight. I just thought that was a nice little touch because I think that's actually him trying to pull a quick, fast one over Bogo. But then he has a quote, and this is actually my favorite quote in the entire film. Don't ever let them see that they get to you. I love that quote because it's, it's not the simplistic frankly wrong perspective. It's not saying, don't let them get to you. That, <laughs> what? It's not, they're just trying to get to you. I'm sure you've heard that one, right? Oh, they're just trying to upset you. Oh, they're just trying to hurt you. Don't worry about it. No, his advice is, don't ever let them see that they get to you. Show no fear, show no pain. I like that. <sighs> so then Nick mentioned something. And this is where I want to mention something about his shirt really quick. If you've been noticing, he has this nice palm tree pattern on his shirt. It's actually the same pattern as on his wallpaper on his room when we go into the flashback. And he's got this little bandana he got there, too, when he wanted to join the Scouts, or whatever they were called. Um, he actually still has that bandana into the modern age. He, for example, he uh, gets the blueberries up in it. But what I like about that, and about that flashback, this is the moment that I, it really just came home for me how much anti-predator bias there was in addition to the anti-prey bias, as I said when I first watched this film. But what I like about that scene more than anything else is that he has to swear an oath to be, and I wrote this down, brave, loyal, helpful, and trustworthy. I think Nick qualifies as all those throughout the course of this film. Now, you could argue which ones are which at which points, but... It's nice to see he finally did fulfill that. And he becomes a cop for it, so that's cool. <clears throat> so, Lionheart, this is a great little bit. This is another one of those little subtle bits that I didn't catch my first time around. Lionheart is super aggravated. He's, he's irritable as crap. He's like, not now, come on! I get, clear my schedule, I'm going to be busy! Now, at first, it feels like the way, the way they present that, the way they show that tonally, makes it seem like this is to indicate that he's a bad mayor, that Bellwether is the one running around doing the real work, and he's off there looking important, you know, playing golf or whatever. And yet, one of the very next scenes cuts to Mayor Lionheart at the institution trying to look into people. There's another little bit, too. Um, in addition to the fact he's like, clear my schedule, I'm going to be busy, and that, and the addition to the fact that he's irritable, when it zooms in on Bellwether's uh, shop for like two seconds, you see a bunch of stacks of boxes that all say urgent on them. Because, of course, this has been going on for a few weeks now. 
my point is, I don't think Lionheart's a bad mayor. He's a politician. He's very a politician. But it's worth noting that he did actually give a damn about what was going on, and he was actually trying to solve it. And certainly out of some self-interest, out of interest for himself, out of interest for his career, but also out of interest for his city and for his people, his pack, if you will. Now, I like that, but my point is, it's so, it's, I can't believe I didn't catch this the first time, it's so obvious to me that the, the reason he's so irritable is because he's been dealing with this thing and not having any results, and the reason he's not been doing his day-to-day -day job is because he's been trying to solve this crisis. It, it really adds another little layer to his character that makes him a lot more likable, in addition to the fact that he's voiced by, I can't remember his name, but he's awesome. <clears throat> I'm going to get 50 comments telling me his name now. <laughs> he's voiced by Jonah Jameson, okay? What do you want from me? Um, really quick note I just want to share here. While, and I don't, I, this is the first time I noticed this as well, fourth time seeing this, and the first time I noticed a lot of things. While Bellwether is helping them out, uh, two things I want to mention. First of all, actually three things, oh my gosh. First of all, Bellwether, when he's playing with her foot wool, she gives absolutely no reaction to it, as if she wasn't even noticing it. And yet, much further on in the film, in the ending credits actually, when someone tries to do something very similar, she bats him away instantly. So she was just ignoring him. More, more show to that the facade she was keeping up. But in addition to that, she ignores Nick. Almost completely. She talks with Judy. She animates with Judy. She's, she's you know, affable and nice, and she's got that whole projecting nicehood thing. But she completely ignores Nick. Whether because he's a fox or a predator, I don't know. But it just kind of showcases that. And the final thing I want to mention about this scene is that she has a little notepad. She's got a bunch of stuff on her desk. You know, she's got a little lamb calendar and a lamb magnet and a little notepad that says Doug and a number. Now, for those of you who have forgotten, and I won't blame you because I think they only say his name twice in this film, Doug is the sniper who's been distilling the Night Howler poison, the, the savagery plague. You know, basically the closest thing to a made bad guy without actually being the mastermind behind it. Nice little touch there. So, they go out. We see the, the wolves who... It's actually interesting because when you think about it, these wolves would make very good uh, special ops groups. They're wolves. They're pack animals. They know what they're doing, and they can coordinate quickly and move quickly. And wolves are also multi-biome, like some of the other species I mentioned earlier, like foxes and rabbits. But the, the funny thing is they make terrible guards, and I think we kind of see the, the reason why that is. Although I, that's actually not true. Wolves can be good guards, but... Uh, not the best, because whoo Anyways. <clears throat> so then they get inside. And then there's a nice little scene. And I admit, I didn't see this my first time. I did see it my second. Judy is kneeling here. And um, Nick is kneeling there as well. And they're hiding and they're watching. And the scientist says something along the lines of, I think we need to start considering the possibility of biology. And it cuts to Judy and Nick for like a second. And we see her just kind of going... It's very light, very slight. And we see him going, like he raises an eyebrow almost incredulously. I mean, it's obvious why, right? So, I love all those little touches. God, this is such a polished film. I think it's one of the reasons I like it so much. So, they catch him, they get away, blah, blah, blah. You know, I, I, oh my gosh, we still don't know why this is happening. 
Um, Nick gives an interesting little thing. She gives Nick gives her uh, what I like to call question avoidance one hundred and one. Uh, wait, you want me to talk about this? Uh, I do. Want, do I want to talk about this? Yes, I do. You know the whole rephrase it as a related question and then turn it back around. He does this several times on her, actually. And in fact, Lionheart does this a couple times in this film, too. Judy does this successfully once and then fails miserably at it every other point. Oh, and by the way, yes, it has been confirmed. Yes, that was Doug in the audience giving the prompting leading question, which kind of tripped up Judy in order to try and prompt the whole thing. And once again, we see Bellwether being nice and kind. No, no, you did enough. You did exactly... She, she comes across as like, it's okay, I'll, I'll get you out of here. No real problems. Because she's already got what she wanted. There's... A really great scene where she's talking to Nick, and Nick is hurt. Nick is personally hurt because, well, actually, ironically, because Nick is going through the exact same thing she went through, just on a much more deep level. Remember, she was like, oh, my God, it's a fox. He's up to something. Oh, he's a good guy. Oh, wow, I feel really stupid. Okay, I'll help him out. Oh, my God, he really was a fox, right? That's kind of the exact same thing that Nick goes through here. Except throughout the whole film, he'd slowly been warming up to her and slowly starting to accept that someone, one person, accepted him as a, to use their own terminology, as a mammal rather than as a fox. And then, well, now he's seeing that all thrown out the window. And, of course, he's having those nightmares. I mean, he, they even show the muzzle, for God's sakes. Can you imagine what it would feel like to be muzzled? I, I don't really want to think about that, to be completely honest with you. And then she has this wonderful line. And it's a wonderful line because it sets up another line. Well, a bunny couldn't go savage. That line right there says everything it needs to say about her mentality, her bias, because she is prejudiced. Because prejudice means to prejudge, to be automatically inclined in a situation. The reason I love this film so much is because the message of the film is not don't be biased because that's not really possible like we can pull back our bias we can accept certain things and move away certain prejudices whether it's racial or gender or age or national or whatever but actually removing all bias from our lives that's not really feasible not really what matters is we do with that bias and, well, we see what she starts to do without thinking with that bias. And it makes things very bad. She even automatically reaches for that fox repellent just because he makes a, a threatening gesture. He wasn't going to attack her in the middle of the, the police headquarters with a giant crowd over there. Of course he wasn't. But she reacted automatically because of that bias. She didn't, well, she didn't prove that she was more than an animal. And I like that message. It, it's a more complex message than you usually get from these kind of Aesops. So then he hands her back the, you know, the the, uh, the the application and storms off. And they only show it for about a second, but he actually filled out the application, which just made me go, oh. And then as he's walking out, you know, she's, she, the, the bros are like, oh my gosh, was that a predator? No, no, he's my friend. Oh my god, we can't even trust my friends? And you can just sort of see the fear build. And we see this montage. 
And then another one of those subtle bits that I didn't catch at first happens because every single one of these little things that has happened so far has been very quiet. A few individuals are aware of them, but there was no media circus. There was no panic. It wasn't on the news. Nobody knew that animals were going savage. Now, why is that? Well, I'm just going to run you through my own logic and my own theory on the matter because the reason why is it serves her purpose much more to have multiple animals, all predators, of course, go savage, get locked up by uh, Lionheart, who has been on top of this this whole time, gets them put away, and basically for her to just wait for the opportune moment to crack the lid on that case. That gets rid of Lionheart, because he's been the one hiding this, and it's, it's instead of, oh my god, one random guy goes loco, it's, oh my god, 14, excuse me, 15 random people went insane, and we didn't even know about it. Now, that's already true, but then in the montage, we see that they mentioned that there have been several additional of these things openly and in public since that, which never happened previously. Again, this is just a little bit too scripted if anyone bothered to sit back and think about it. Why is this suddenly happening out in the open where all the previous ones were all nicely hidden? And it's because now that the cat is out of the bag, now that the news is out and the fear is cycling, now she wants to make sure that everyone knows. So we have this wonderful little montage. <clears throat> Excuse me. And... Um... <laughs> There's actually a, a quote, Go back to the forest, Predator. I'm from the Savannah. A little bit too much on the nose there, but what are you going to do? There's a bit where she's brought in to become like the new face of the, of the ZPD. And I think in this scene is truly Chief Bogo at his most cohesed, at his most distilled. Because... He is very supportive, but he is also very honest. And all of that can be summarized by one quote, which I wrote down here. She says, you know, I, I think I broke Zootopia. And he says, don't give yourself so much credit. The world's always been broken. That's why we need good cops like you. That is wonderfully honest while still being encouraging. It still makes me think that he was actually going to try and kick her off the force earlier. But it does also show that once she earned his respect, she frickin' had it. So she quits the force. And we have, in film, basically one scene of her being retired. This is probably one of my other little minor complaints about the film. Because that's actually three months. I didn't know that until I started doing research for this particular video. She actually spends three months being retired and being off the force and as things get worse and worse back in Zootopia and as she sells blueberries and carrots and Lord knows what else. Maybe some radishes? I, I could go for a radish right now. And <clears throat> so Gideon Gray comes there. Nice little, nice little touch, the fact that they reached out to him because of her because she had encouraged them to think beyond race, excuse me, specious uh, boundaries. And they did. And Gideon Gray's been going to therapy. It's very clear by the way he talks, he's been going to therapy. And then they look at the, you know, the night howlers, and they talk about how one of the bunnies went savage. And this line right here, this is what we like to call a wham line over on TV Tropes. A bunny can go savage. Oh, crap. And that just kind of makes everything make sense. Now, I don't actually have a lot to say about the rest of the film. There's not really much there. There's a really good scene 
Nick is, of course, under a bridge. Nice touch, by the way. And uh, he's, in my opinion, he's probably already forgiven her. He's had three months, for God's sakes. He's had time to distance himself from his own personal stake in things and to accept that she did something in a moment. And that while she meant it, she didn't meant it intellectually. Again, it's that whole, you know, what we do with our bias thing. And so he kind of gives her the runaround, but it's pretty clear based on how it, that, that he already forgave her. But I like that scene because she just pours her heart out to him. And there's no music playing to it. And God damn it, this is how you do a no music scene properly right there. Take note, Square Enix. <sighs> so then there's a big action sequence. I, I, again, I don't have much to say about this really, other than what I mentioned earlier about her nearly losing everything because she overextends herself. Um, and honestly, I guess I, I don't need my notes at this point. I've only got a couple other things to say. First of all, there's one little bit about the Natural History Museum. I can't believe I missed this my first time watching this. It's so obvious. There's this mural in the background with a bunch of proto-bunnies. And they're all bunnies, of course, holding spears, attacking a jaguar. I'm pretty sure it's a jaguar. I'm not actually 100% sure. Who is cowering in a tree. And it's, it's framed in the background as, as they walk up and are talking with uh, Bellwether for the first time. And that just says so much. I find myself... I mean, it's so obvious why there is this massive bias, where there's this massive line... And it's probably not going to go away anytime soon. If it's that ingrained, if it's that deep, if it's been going the back that far, it's no wonder the prey is the dominant race here. I hate to use that term, but I don't know what else to call it. Culture, maybe? I don't know. Dominant side, we'll use that term. Because they're the ones who pretty much started developing, evolving, learning, growing. In or evolving is the wrong word. I don't want to use that. Growing to use tools to use technology. Technology's entire purpose is the application of ingenuity, right? I mean, that is the definition of technology. And technology's purpose has always been to supplant what you cannot provide through natural means. The predators back in the day probably didn't need any form of technology. The prey did, and again, no humans. So the prey developed. They got sticks. They got organization and communication. They got sticks with Rocks at the end. What do the predators get? Now, at some point, there was probably some attempt at moving these two groups together. But again, the world builder in me wonders, how long ago was that? At what point did it become slightly more acceptable for predators and prey to exist within the same city, for example? Or within the same general regions? How recent is that? I'd give some real-life parallels, but honestly, I don't actually want to. <laughs> then there's the big finale, which is a nice bookend. I don't actually have much to say, but it's a very nice bookend. It's one of those things that if you pay very close attention, you can see what's going on. Uh, she gets injured and then deliberately runs the wrong way. Um, there's the scene where you know they, they showcase everything. The blueberries fall out, and they've got the pellet gun, and then they lose the pellet gun, and then she goes out, and, and his pupils don't dilate in the same way. You know, There's all sorts of little signs about what's going on. And, of course, she completely overreacts, as you would. They catch Miss Bellwether, the end. I kind of hope, I know this is incredibly idealistic and stupid of me, but I kind of hope that at the very least the shock of this circumstance, of how much everyone allowed their fear to get the better of them, will at least allow this current generation to be a little bit more tolerant and accepting of the other side. 
maybe not even having that side thing. I mean, I'm just saying, they're all mammals, right? We all need to be united against those frickin' reptiles. God, I hate those guys. I love this movie. Thank you very much for your continued support, and I'll be seeing you guys next Floodgate Cycle.